0: Uh, And when I get excited, I want to punch things, and I am a little bit overly excited right now, so I may end up preaching for like two hours up here, so... Some of y'all are like, Lord Jesus, please calm him down. (laughs) All right, let's do this. The last sermon, a sermon on the mount. I'm excited. I've been encouraged by this series. I hope that you have too. Uh, Jesus is going to land the plane here in a very tangible and a very real way. So uh, yeah, just excited about that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, We will be in Matthew chapter seven. We're going to camp out pretty much the whole day there. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there's one under every second and third chair around you. Take that, keep that. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to use it uh, during and throughout the week. And so, uh, yeah, please feel free to take that home. You can also follow along on your uh, smartphones. If you have the Bible app underneath the events section, type in the well, Austin. You'll be able to follow along that way. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you could just take this link and put it right into your browser. You'll be able to follow along that way too. Uh, We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word. And so whether it's on your phone or in a physical Bible or whatever that may be, uh, we want you to be able to see the scriptures and see that we're not making this up, that these are the words of what we believe. Uh, are the Lord and that what he wants to say to us and how to uh, live our lives in light of him. And so um, with that, I want to dive right in and actually look at this passage in reverse today. And so we're going to kind of chop up and read the whole section, but many times people end Jesus's Sermon on the Mount with the actual ending of what Jesus said, and they kind of ignore the last two verses that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to pin into the scriptures. And I think that there's two verses that have massive implications for our Our lives as a whole, and so uh, we're going to read the whole thing and look at it in reverse. Those last two verses first, and then we'll dive into Jesus's analogy because I think it'll help it make more sense to us. So Matthew chapter seven, we're going to pick it up in verse twenty-four and go to the end to verse twenty-nine. Says this: Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So if you notice in those last two verses it said that Jesus had authority and that the crowds were astounded at Jesus's teachings, they knew that there was something different or something uh, special or something unique about Jesus's teachings. And we want to look at, hey, what was it? Like what made Jesus such a unique or such a dynamic teacher that they were kind of Struck to the heart, almost the word uh, "astounded." There is a is a, a big Greek word. Is a that they felt the weight of it. Like it felt like it impacted their hearts in a very profound way. And so uh, he was not teaching like a scribe. Okay, he was teaching in a whole different manner. It says so. It's not like they were astounded because Jesus was simply a good teacher. He was a good teacher for sure. But that's not what it was. It wasn't like Jesus was like Tim Keller or Matt Chandler or Todd Watkins or whatever it may be. Like that's not not what it's saying okay it's saying that there was something different behind their teachings there was a a weightiness they felt it all of those men that I just named are scribes telling you what the Word of God said but Jesus is actually doing something very different here Jesus was God and he was laying out a different approach to religion and to God and to everything that people knew all the ways that people interacted with God and interacted with the word Jesus was creating a whole new dynamic here The scribes were reading the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. And people felt the weight of that, the difference of that. The scribes spoke about he who was the creator, but Jesus was the very one that spoke the words and created creation. The scribes were speaking about this God that they knew kind of in theory, but Jesus was speaking about a God he knew intimately, and he himself was God. There was a difference between the way that they taught and that Jesus taught, and they felt the weight of that. They felt the impact of that. They knew that there was something different about this man, and though not everybody could put a finger on exactly what that was. They knew that Jesus's words carried some weight. It was impacting their hearts in a very different and a very tangible way. But there's also a second thing, okay? So it's not just that Jesus was a teacher that was astounding them, but uh, they weren't just shocked at the the, uh, the awe or the wonder or the feeling of the teaching, but they had to be shocked at the content of the teaching as well. Jesus said some pretty astounding things that for us who are used to reading this sermon or for us who are used to understanding some of these words, I think we kind of glaze right over, but Jesus said some things that would have really shocked the first century listeners to the core in very once again deep and profound ways he wasn't just saying hey you should follow god jesus was saying hey you should follow me i'm god you should you should obey me. You should submit your life to me. He didn't just speak with authority. This is what you should do. He was authority, and he was laying down a new type of authority that the people would have been impacted. So throughout Jesus's sermon, he said uh, many different things about himself that were authoritative and that would have changed the way that people perceived him. This isn't just a cute sermon with some cute sayings. No, this is a a pretty deep and a pretty profound truth that Jesus is highlighting. So I'm going to walk through all of these. Okay, and we're going to see why they were so astounded or why they were so shocked at Jesus's teachings. We're going to kind of go back through the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, okay? Firstly, Jesus had authority as a teacher. And you can these will all be on the screen by the way. So, Jesus had authority as a teacher. So, this sounds obvious because of our texts, but they recognized him as a teacher as many throughout human history have, and he was a teacher. He was a great teacher. But what made him different or what made him special as a teacher? For one, Jesus assumed the right to speak absolute truth. Like everybody else would say things like, this is what I think, or it seems to me like God is saying, or when we consider and and think about, but Jesus was saying, no, this is what I say, period, period. This is truth. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. He was authoritative in saying, No, these are the ways that you follow God. Take, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, he said, You have heard that it says in the scriptures, but I tell you this. And he said that over and over and over again in chapter five. You've heard the scriptures say this, and maybe some of your people interpret it like this or they perceive it like this, but I tell you it's actually like this. Not I think or I feel, no, this is what the word of God says because I am the word of God. John Stott says this, "'Jesus knew who would be great in God's kingdom "'and who least, who was blessed in God's sight "'and who was not, which way led to life "'and which to destruction. With complete self-confidence, he declared who would inherit the kingdom of heaven and who would inherit the earth? Who would obtain mercy, see God, and be fit to be called God's children? How could he be so sure? Jesus wasn't just teaching nice little truths. He was saying authoritarian, astounding things even, that, hey, you must submit your life to me. The scribes spoke by the authority of scripture, but Jesus spoke the actual scripture, This is what we are reading. They talked about the word, he created the word that we are now reading today. Jesus was a new type of teacher, one that they had never heard or will never hear again because he was laying out, this is what God said. Throughout the Old Testament, you would see the prophets, if you're familiar with it, say things like, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord says. But Jesus never said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you, and then it would be authoritative truth. Jesus was a authoritative teacher. He was saying things that people weren't used to hearing. This wasn't opinion, this was truth. And so you see there uh, uh, on the first slide, I had, uh, what, six different times in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, I say to you, right? 518, 65, 616, etc. Jesus was an authoritative teacher. He's saying, this is what I tell you to do. You should do it. Secondly, Jesus had authority as the Christ. The Christ means the Messiah is the Hebrew word or the anointed one is what that would translate into. The Messiah was the one that was predicted by the prophets to be sent by God to do a specific mission that God had called this Messiah to do. And so there was a mission for the Messiah to come and Jesus knew what the mission was and spoke with that authority to say, hey, I have come to do the mission of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, I have come to fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. Jesus knew what his mission was. He said, look, I have come down from heaven, from God, and I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm the Messiah. I'm the, the Christ. I'm going to come and I'm going to lay out exactly what it means and what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. I have a mission and I'm going to do it. He's the anointed one, the one blessed by God. Jesus is asserting in Matthew chapter 5 that all of the lines and all the parallels and all the similes and all the analogies, that everything in the Old Testament all converge onto him, onto his person and work, that every single line would lead you into the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is an authoritative and a great, great claim, and it's pretty astounding if you thought about it. Like imagine if you were the listener in the first century or imagine if today I came in here and I said, hey, you know, every single thing in the Bible, Old and New Testament, all of it points to me, Toriano Mayo, (laughs) right? Like you would stone me as a heretic, right? And that's exactly why they crucified Christ because he was saying astounding things that would say, hey, everything is pointing to, it's talking about me. I am the fulfillment of all of your hopes, of all of the law, of all of the prophecy. This is me. Jesus spoke with authority as the Messiah. Matter of fact, the first recorded words of Jesus' public ministry in Mark chapter one, listen to this, verse 15 says this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then five times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like this and I fulfill it. It's pointing to me. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is me is what Jesus would say. He is the anointed one, the one sent by God to show us how to live, but more than just show us as our example, but be our fulfillment for us. Jesus is the authoritative Messiah. Thirdly, Jesus has authority as the Lord. Not just a good guy and not just a teacher to be respected. Oh, wow, those are good truths. But he was actually the Lord to be obeyed. Not just a man to give honor to, but one to submit to in obedience. He is the Lord. Note in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. In fact, let's read that because this will come up several times throughout this. Jesus said this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, his quibble with people in this passage is that they call him Lord, Lord, yet they do not do what he says. He says, hey, you, you give me wordplay, but you actually don't submit to me. You don't obey me as Lord. So Jesus was claiming the authority as the Lord. He said, I am the Lord to be followed. These are not uh, suggestive teachings. These are not ways to, if you add these in, then they'll make your life a little bit better. No, these are the truths of God that you have to submit to. Because I'm Lord. If you want the Father, if you want eternal life, if you want to receive the blessing of the kingdom, the earth, the inheritance, the, the, the ruling over the earth, to be called sons of God, then you must obey me as Lord, is what Jesus said all throughout the sermon. Fourthly, Jesus has authority as the Savior, So, Jesus is the anointed one who came with a mission to fulfill the law, but he's also the Savior who saves us. So, he does the work of God as Christ or Messiah, and then he saves us as the Savior. He saves us from sin. He saves us from Satan. He saves us from the world. He saves us from the wrath of God. He saves us from the punishment of the law. He saves us from hell. He saves us from ourselves. Jesus is the savior who can take away the selfishness of our lives and the way that we so frequently destroy it and give us a brand new life. Jesus saves us. John Stott says this once again. It's plain in the sermon that Jesus knew the way of salvation and taught it. He was able to declare who was blessed and who was not. He can point to the narrow gate which led on to the hard way which ended in life. And he was quite clear which kind of house would survive the storms of judgment and which would fonder. Think about all the things that Jesus said throughout the sermon. For example, how could Jesus call the little tiny men and women that are listening to this sermon the light of the world? (laughs) you little peasants right like they're nobodies these aren't the kings these aren't the rulers these aren't people that are going to naturally impact the world but he would say things like like you are the light of the world how could he say that unless he himself believed that he was the actual light that he had no darkness within himself that he by believing in him could extend light into us that he could make us a city on a hill that could not be hidden He had to believe that he was the Savior in order to call people the light of the world. Or, you are the salt of the earth. Or, he would say things like in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he would say, uh, And you who are evil men know how to give good gifts to your children. What is he insinuating but that he is not an evil one? All the rest of us are evil. He didn't say we, he said You. He is the good one though. He's the savior. He's different than us. He can come in and give us life. He believes that he is the savior of the world and he is speaking with such authority as that. He tells us that only the perfect can enter the kingdom of God. But then later he says that in the kingdom of God, he will be the one judging, which means he believes that he is the perfect one that can save us from our sins and give us his perfection. He can take away our wickedness and give us his righteousness. This is what Jesus believed. If you must be perfect to enter the kingdom, then how do we do it apart from a savior? But Jesus said, if you believe in him, we'll enter the kingdom. He must believe that he is the savior. Fifth, Jesus had authority as the judge. In Matthew chapter 7, once again, verses 22 through 23, Jesus called himself the judge and said that he would judge the world. Now, for us, that may not sound like a massive claim, but for the Jewish audience that was listening to that, that would have been an astounding claim because they believe that only Yahweh God, God the Father, could judge the world, but Jesus is saying, no, I will actually judge the world. In fact, there are all sorts of Old Testament scriptures that say that only God will judge humanity. He will judge the angels. He will judge satan but jesus now says hey i'm actually going to be the judge and so this would have shocked them and they would have felt the authority of that that this man isn't just speaking like a scribe he is speaking with this authoritative claim he believes that he's the judge of the world once again imagine if i got up here and said something like that right like hey i have the keys to life and i'm gonna look at you and say whether or not you get into heaven or hell nope sorry you don't make it brother right Like, you'd be like that, you can't do that, okay? Like, sorry, give me some donuts, maybe I'll let you in, right? Now, that's actually what we would normally think that people would respond, that they would, uh, in their judgment, kind of create their own benefit, but Jesus, instead of being selfish with his judgment, even though he was the judge of the earth, he could have demanded us to give him certain things, but instead, the judge of the earth laid down his life for us. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So instead of judging us with the iron fist, he judges himself instead that he may judge us as pure. This is a beautiful judge, but he still claims authority as one. He still says that he is the judge of the earth and has the power to judge. Even more, if you remember from last week, and if you look there real quick at Matthew chapter seven, verse 21 through 23, look at the standard of judgment. Look at the standard by which Jesus will judge the world. Not only is Jesus the one that decides people's eternal destiny, but he himself is the criteria for that judgment. Are y'all tracking with that? So he doesn't just say, hey, this is, you're in heaven, you're in hell, sorry about that, right? Like he says, no, I am the criteria by which I judge. Do you know me? Do you have a relationship with me? Are you my friends, my brother, my bride, is there intimacy to be had? Jesus isn't advocating for good people or people who serve him. He's advocating for relationship, but he is the very criteria of judgment. Do you know who I am? Notice the I and the me pronouns there in chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. It's about I, Jesus, me, Jesus. He keeps saying it over and over again, right? Even more, notice that the judgment that's going to be had for those who do not know him, the punishment that is going to be received is that you won't have a relationship with Jesus for eternity. He says, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, away from me. The judgment isn't necessarily just hell, even though he does mention that on the Sermon on the Mount, but the judgment is actually a lack of relationship with God. He believes that he is the greatest good. He believes that reward, that eternal life, that heaven is actually being in relationship with him. This is an astounding claim. Jesus believes that he is the greatest good, that in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hands are treasures forevermore and that he is that treasure. And judgment is away from him, away from relationship. This is astounding and even shocks some of us in here today, it should at least. I know it shocks me, right? That Jesus is the standard, he's the judge, he's the standard, and he is the reward or punishment. The whole thing is about Christ. That's why we are Christ-centered as a church, because Jesus is the center of everything. This little carpenter of Nazareth says that he is hope, joy, love, peace, life, what we desire. Six, Jesus has authority as the Son of God. So throughout the sermon, Jesus shows how God is the creator of all. Right, he says that he created the birds and the flowers, and he feeds the birds, and he clothes the flowers, and this is what God is like. But then notice once again, in chapter 7, verse 21, he calls God his father. It says, my father, acclaiming that he is the very son of God. That's why throughout Jesus' sermon, he could call him your father or our father, because he knew that if we believe in him, he gives us the right for adoption, Who can give that right but the very son of God and God himself, Jesus? Only Jesus can give that right. And finally, seventh, Jesus had authority as God. It's not enough to call him judge, even though this does imply that he is God, or teacher, or Messiah, or son. But we have to see that Jesus was authoritative because he believed that he was God. This isn't an invention. We don't just kind of make this up. This is what Jesus believes who he was. He believes that he was God. And throughout the sermon, he's saying that over and over and over again. For example, Jesus came to fulfill the law, he says, and fulfill all the Old Testament uh, prophecies about him. But then he makes this astounding claim in verse 12. He says that disciples or those who follow him would be persecuted for his sake. Now what he's doing here is he's drawing this parallel because the prophets in the Old Testament over and over and over again, it said they were persecuted because they were serving God. Jesus says, you will be like the prophets and be persecuted because you are serving me. What is he insinuating? But that he is God. And all throughout all the other six examples that we named, he's showing that he's saying, this is what I say. Believe this. Trust me. He assumes that he has the right to speak eternal truth because he believes that he is the eternal one. He is the one that has come to save. Do you see the authority that Jesus spoke with? He is the judge and the Lord and the God to be obeyed, but he's also the Messiah and the savior and the son to bestow blessing. He's both and, and he gives himself to us freely. This isn't just a cute sermon filled with, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hey, praise God for the golden rule. But this is way deeper than that. Jesus is saying, I am God. Scott McKnight says this. So we dare not reduce Christology to ethics. Instead, the sermon calls us to lift ethics into Christology. What echoes down throughout the corridors of history when the sermon is read or preached is that Jesus, in the closing passage, claps the very words to himself, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, to respond to the sermon is not to respond to an ethical vision. To respond is to respond to Jesus. And the proper response is to declare who he is by the way that we live. And so this launches us into our analogy that Jesus gives us. He speaks with authority. The people feel the weight of that authority. And then Jesus gives this analogy as the rock and the sand, he says. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this analogy. In fact, let's read it again just so it's fresh in our minds. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There are a few things I want you to notice. Notice that both the sand builder and the rock builder are doing the exact same thing. They're both building right like it's not like one's building a hut and the other one's building a mansion okay he doesn't give any difference in fact if you read the sermon and miss just two key words does them or does not do them it actually reads the exact same way it's the exact same idea jesus is kind of highlighting hey these two people are pretty similar in fact to the casual observer you probably wouldn't have been able to tell the difference Because Jesus was talking about the foundation upon which they were building. Was it rock or sand? And foundation is underground. What is he saying? The foundation is our hearts. It's what we are building our lives around. The house that Jesus speaks of is our lives. See, both the sand builder and the rock builder, they both get married or stay single. They both have kids or have friendships. They both have jobs or careers or they're both going to school. They're both buying houses or buying cars. They're both going through the ups and downs in life. They're both building their lives on something. The difference is not what is externally seen, but it's what's internal to them. It's their heart, the condition of their heart, is the foundation. What are they building their lives upon? Which type of foundation are they structuring their lives around? Their marriages, their finances, their whatever it may be, what is that structure? Jesus, if you remember from earlier sermons, is not just contrasting the non-religious people with the Christian but he's also contrasting the religious people with the Christian. And he says, hey look, neither of these ways are the ways to God. You can't be religious or you can't do enough good things to attain God. All of us are poor in spirit. We don't have what it takes to achieve the goodness of God. So you can't be religious and have it all together and just do the right things. You have to believe in me, but you do have to care. You can't be irreligious. You can't say, oh, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Like you have to seek righteousness. You have to seek. And if you're not seeking, you're a house builder still. It's just you're not thinking about the foundation that you're building your house upon. And when, not if, okay, circle when in your Bible, if you have your physical Bibles, when the floods and the rains and the winds come, that house will crumble. It comes both upon the believer and those who do not believe in the words of Jesus but one house stands and the other house falls. Both of them listened, but only one did the words of God. Now, I just said that the religious, those who try to do, do not get into the kingdom. But Jesus said that you must listen and do the words of mine. Well, what are these words? Well, all throughout the sermon, he kind of showed us what it's like. But if you go to John chapter uh, five, I'm sorry, chapter six, verse 29, he says it most plainly. It says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is how you do God's will. This is how you do what God has called you to do, that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe in Jesus. This is the work that God calls us to. The work is belief. In other words, it's not really a work at all. It's a way to kind of persuade our hearts that even though we desire to do all these good things to achieve God's righteousness, we don't have what it takes. And so all we have to do is believe. It's scandalous grace is what it's called. It's scandalous because it feels almost cheap, but it wasn't cheap. It cost the son of God his life. The perfect one, was crucified, that our work may be belief. And through that belief we then begin to build our house on the foundation. Once we submit to or believe in Jesus's authority as judge, as God, as savior, then our lives change. And then we believe, begin to be, uh, uh, become an upside down people, a people who live counterculture, a people who live differently, who look and act like the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't look and act like it because we're trying to achieve God's righteousness. No, we believe in God and then he alters our hearts and we begin to live like that. We begin to be the salt and light we begin to be the peacemakers our lives look differently because they have been shaped they have been reoriented around the person and work of Jesus belief in God is our work and then when we believe in God we are changed and we do good works naturally good works don't save us but good works do show us that we're saved it changes who we are It alters our heart and our lives. We believe and then we begin to look differently. Our foundation or our heart is our belief. This is why we say the gospel changes everything. You don't just like get saved by believing in the gospel and then get sanctified by doing a bunch of good works. No, you get saved by believing in the gospel, and then the gospel continually transforms all the works that we do. It's the foundation upon which we build everything else around. It's not like you build six foundations in a house, right? Like there's not a foundation above this building. Or even if you go downtown and you look at one of the skyscrapers, the bigger the house, the deeper the foundation, right? How deep is your foundation? How much is your heart actually rooted in the person and work of Christ? How much do you believe in the gospel? How much do you allow it to change all of who you are? Or do you kind of believe, but then you also do your own works, and then you also kind of don't care about God in some ways, and then you also, and you're building this weird foundation where it's half rock, half sand, half, that was 100%, there's no other halves. <laughs> All right, like, like where are we building our foundation? Okay, I couldn't think of anything else. That's really what it was, All Right, So it's not enough just to hear these words, but we must do them too. This is why it astounded the, the, the people that were listening to him. Do you see that? Like this is why they felt, I mean, this is something different. This is something that, that, that we have never really heard before. This is astounding. Let me put it into our context today. We can't just be churchgoers and that gets us into the kingdom. We have to believe in God and do the will of God. Coming to church doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. Jesus said, hey, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you. Like, like, they were doing more than what I usually do. Like, have any of y'all done many miracles and cast out many demons, right? Like maybe a couple, but they were saying, look, we've done many of these. And he said, I, I, I don't know you though. We don't have a relationship. And so it's not enough just to do what God calls us to do in some little small way. No, our foundation has to be built on the person and work of Jesus. And until we do that, then we are building our lives on the sand because trials come to both parties, right? Like it's a common mistake that Christians think that once they get saved, that trials don't happen to them anymore. That's just not true, friends. In fact, trials often prove whether or not you actually have that faith in the first place. When the wind starts shaking the house, does it stand or does it fall? It's a good proof, a test of the faith. Because I know many of you, I know your testimony, that many of you would say, well, you know, I kind of thought I was a Christian because I prayed a prayer when I was eight, right? I I said this one thing here or there. So I I thought I believed, I, I thought I knew Jesus, but then I realized I actually didn't. And what it usually is, is that a trial came into the person's life and they got mad at God or they left God completely because they assumed that it was God's fault for the trial because they assumed that once they believe, then things are just rosy. But that's not true. Trial happens. Are you on the foundation though? Do you believe in Jesus? On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I think about back to Natalie and I's life About two years ago, um, to date almost, a few weeks before, but we found out that we had a miscarriage. And it was a tragic time, it was a hard time, it was a, a, a time of a lot of turmoil, of a lot of grief, of a lot of crying, of a lot of tears. But let me be honest with you, if our foundation was our children, our house fell. Because to no fault of our own, that child passed away. And if that's our foundation, then our house is ruined. And so the same is true for all of us. If our foundation is success at work, climbing the ladder, if our foundation is marriage, if our foundation is children, if our foundation is comfort, right? Getting the nice house with the nice car with the 2.5 kids and a Christian dog around a white picket fence. Like if that's our foundation, what if we don't get it? Worse... What if we do get it and it doesn't satisfy? Our foundation has to be deeper than that because trial is going to come. It is promised to us. Are you going to stand or fall through that that trial? Is our house built on the Messiah? Let Let me say this to kind of start landing the plane here. Notice that in verse 24, it says, Everyone. Everyone who hears these words. Do you see that there in verse 24? Everyone who hears these words of mine. What does that mean? That means that the ability to build your house on a foundation is for everybody. It's not just those who are the super religious. It's not just those who were Jews at the time. It's not just for the men. It's not just for one sect of people who do these certain rules and jump through all these hoops. No, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, builds his house on the foundation. This is for all of us. Every single person who is hearing the words, including all of us in here today and all throughout human history who hear these words of Jesus and who believe in them, they have the ability to take their house and to planet it onto a foundation that will not get ruined by the storms. They have the ability to place their hope, their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, no matter how much you don't think you need him, or no matter how bad you think you are, all of us can receive it. All of us have the ability to build our house on Christ. And so my question, amen. And so our question, okay, is, if you haven't done that, I just wanna be bold, okay? Like, 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 what's stopping you from building your house on the rock? Everything else crumbles This is not a happy end to the sermon in a lot of ways, but it's a sobering, truthful end. Suffering will come. Trials will come. Why not build it on the rock? Because Jesus promises that, hey, I am going to sustain you through that. Even though the winds and the waves may come, even though the sufferings, even though the heartaches may come, I will be your Lord. I will be your God. I will be your king, I will be your ruler, I will be your judge, and I will not condemn you, I will bless you, I will not cast you away, I will bring you in. What's stopping you from believing that beautiful truth? Because here's the beauty of this sermon, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is our example of all these things, right? Jesus built his house on God very clearly because when the greatest suffering in human history occurred, his house stood. Jesus went through onto the cross because he believed in God's goodness. So Jesus is our example. But friends, even more than that, Jesus is our fulfillment. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is alluding to. See, Jesus knew that your house would stand on a rock because Jesus Christ himself is that rock upon which the house is on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I love this, verse four, Paul is giving this uh, analogy of the Old Testament Israelites. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you remember that after the Exodus, after they crossed the Red Sea, they went out into the middle of nowhere and they were in the desert and they were parched and they were thirsty and they said, God, did you bring us out here to die? They're suffering, okay? And then God tells Moses, go strike the rock and it will give you water. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse four says that Jesus was that rock. Jesus was the rock that was struck so that you and I who are parched may be forever satiated in him. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus calls himself the cornerstone. The foundation is what that is. He is the foundation. He is the rock that holds the whole rest of the building together. He is the cornerstone. Christ is our rock. See, Christ was split in half so that you and I who should be split may be whole forever in him. Jesus became the house that fell. His body pierced, his body torn. The, the temple, the curtain temple split in two as an as a analogy of what happened to Christ. This division, right, this separation. Jesus was literally crushed when the winds and the waves and the, the storms of God's wrath came. It didn't come upon us. It came upon Jesus. He was the rock so that we can forever have a sure foundation in him. He can say this so authoritatively and so confidently because he knows it's about him. And he knows that he's going to fulfill the works of God to perfection. And so friends, as we land the Sermon on the Mount, man, if you don't know the Savior like that, if God is not your Lord, if he's not your God, if you have not given your life to him and obeyed him and submitted to him, I would just say, man, today you can. Literally by saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I believe in you. Like, like, that's it. It seems cheap, but we just said it wasn't. It cost the Son of God his life. He paid for you that you would not be crushed. That even when the winds and the waves of this silly earth come, that you can stand firm. I love the idea. There was a, a preacher who once said that when we're in eternity, we're going to be there for a thousand years and we'll be talking to each other. And we'll say, do you remember earth? I go, Man, yeah, I kind of do remember that. I own this really weird red baseball cap. What his idea was, that's what we're going to remember. It's not going to be the suffering. It's not going to be the trials because we'll be in bliss forever. Jesus knows that no amount of suffering in this earth can do anything to our house because it's on him. And our house is what lasts forever. We'll just remember that. Man, there was this restaurant called Torchy's. It was all right. And now I'm eating Jesus' tacos. This is where it's at. <laughs> all right? Like, man, we have to build our house on him. If it's not built on him, today you can make that true. And men, women who believe in Jesus, family, if you believe in Jesus, what part of your life are you not building on the foundation What part of your life, what trial that would come that would tear a piece of that house down, that would kind of ruin that, would you feel like it may unravel you a little bit? If you lost your job, if you lost your spouse, if you lost whatever it may be, what would completely unravel you? It may be a good sign that, hey, even though Jesus can save us holistically, we haven't slid our whole foundation onto his rock yet. And when we learn to... When the winds and the waves, when suffering comes, we'll be able to stand fully, completely, holistically. Friends, Jesus is speaking with authority, and he is speaking authoritative, crazy truths. To believe in him is life. Simple as that, to believe in him is joy. And if you have tasted and seen the Lord is good, you know the truth of this, and we can rejoice in that. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truths. Jesus, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for preaching this, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving a sermon yourself where you lay out the truths of who you are, Jesus. How good are you to give yourself to us like that? Thank you for walking on this earth 2,000 years ago and preaching the truths of the gospel that we may know you. God, I pray for those of us who call you Lord who don't just say, Lord, Lord, with your mouth, but actually have a relationship with you. Who don't just say, Lord, Lord, but actually do the work of belief. We believe in our change, God. For those of us who have actually submitted to you as both Savior and Lord, God, would you help us to learn how to do that more and more and more? Let the gospel always be rich in our hearts, Jesus. Let us be men and women who live upside down, who are the peacemakers, who are the merciful who will inherit the earth because you did it for us, Christ. Let us be humbled by that truth and worship you for that truth, God. I admit, I confess, my heart is dull to that at times, Jesus. God, undull my heart. Remind me of the truths of my salvation that you have drawn me into relationship with yourself. God, remind us. Remind us. Lord, I pray that even today, I just ask Lord, that those who do not know you, God, that you would even today reveal yourself to them, draw them in. Men and women, my prayer for you is that you would not hesitate. We may never have all the answers, we'll never know everything there is to know. The angels have been there for 2,000 years since the cross and they still don't fully understand it. We may never know the full truth, but you can taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's a more sure foundation than anything else on this earth. And I pray that today you would choose to make Jesus your Lord. Father, we thank you for what you do. Thank you for blessing this body, this family. Lord, let us be a church that makes much of you, King Jesus. We pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen.